We are beginning this summer series uh, titled Q&A, Your Questions, God's Answers, and um, have a, something to say about that in a moment. But would you stand with me and let's confess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sat down on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. For those of you who choked on the word Catholic there, I just want to remind you that uh, that word means universal. And uh, we, uh, we affirm that there is one true universal church, not universalist, but universal. I realize that it may be a tall order. Uh, may it seem presumptuous to say that I'm going to give you God's answers to your questions, but that is my challenge. I'm going to work very hard uh, to give you what I believe are God's answers in the Bible to the questions that you posed. When I give my own opinion, I promise to acknowledge it uh, as my opinion. I have a friend who's a pastor, his name is George, and when he pre- expresses his own opinion, he refers to it as a Georgism, and, uh, and I like that. Well, in your program this morning is a listing of the messages in this series uh, based on questions that were submitted. Um, unfortunately, uh, we had more questions than time, so uh, we don't have enough Sundays this summer to answer every single question that was raised. Uh, so if your question didn't make the list for this series, I, I, I apologize for that. I'm going to try to figure out a way to answer your questions anyway um, in, a, in another venue. Uh, but on this first Sunday in the series, the question we're leading off with is, how can I be confident that the Bible really is God's word? Uh, interesting to me that without exception, each time we've offered a Q&A series, which I, I think we've done maybe three or four times now um, over the years, this question has always been among those submitted. So I have to conclude that it's one that's uh, on the minds of many of us as followers of Jesus. It's a timely question for this generation, I think, in which many have accepted the lie that truth is relative, uh, that the claims of the Bible are historically unreliable, scientifically improbable, if not impossible, culturally regressive, and therefore obsolete and irrelevant. And I could go on with the accusations, couldn't I? It's likely that at some point, Uh, You yourself have grappled with questions pertaining to the reliability of the Bible, especially with regard to your personal faith and the ways that you choose to live your life in response to it. Uh, I would hope that at some point you've those thoughts have skittered across your gray matter. That if that describes you, then this message maybe is for you. I want to warn you ahead of time that this message may be more like getting a drink from a fire hose than a drinking fountain. You may get more on you than in you. Uh, 
and I'm going to move quickly uh, because I have a lot to share, so I hope you'll take notes. And, and I realized after the first service that I should have said uh, to that service that um, it'll be better for the most part if you write down scripture references and don't try to write whole thoughts because I'm going to be moving. We're going to be moving quickly this morning. Um, this message will also be up on our, well, it'll be on YouTube, but it'll also be on our website by Midweek Edited so that you can listen to it again if you choose. Uh, Evan usually takes things out like when I cough or I sneeze or I pick my nose and so those he, he takes those things out and so we're all happier. In LifePoint Church's statement of beliefs is this statement regarding what we believe and teach about the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that human authors were moved by the Holy Spirit to write the very words of Scripture. We believe that the Bible is true and without error and is supremely authoritative for our lives. We believe that, we affirm that, we teach that. As we enter into this study together this morning, I want you to know two things right up front. First, I want you to know that you really can have confidence that the Bible really is God's Word. I mean, if that wasn't true, this little journey we're about to take would be fruitless, wouldn't it? Second, I want to affirm out loud that the Christian faith demands belief in the Bible as the Word of God. Everything we read together moments ago in the Apostles' Creed, everything that believers have always affirmed as essential Christianity, has its source in the Bible. Christians have always been people of the book. Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The apostle Peter urged his readers, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. To the Christ followers in Thessalonica, he wrote, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. Notice that Paul makes the claim that his teaching is the Word of God. There's there's more evidence for the Bible being the Word of God than I can lay out for you in the 40 or so minutes I have. Uh, But I want to direct your attention to seven essential points of evidence for that claim. Point of evidence number one, the Bible's uniqueness among the holy books of the other world religions. The Bible stands alone among all other books. It's unique. It's different from all the others. It's unique, for example, in its view of the triune God, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, its doctrine of origins, its view of humanity, of sin and redemption, of salvation, and life after death. And I could could go on and on. Other religions teach that a man can earn salvation through various religious practices, various good works. The Bible, on the other hand, explains that man is sinful 
um, deserving of God's judgment, that no amount of good works could ever uh, meet God's righteous standards, that no amount of good works could ever remove our guilt. God himself solves our problem by becoming one of us, taking on human flesh, and taking our punishment upon himself. Man-made religions are about what someone can do to merit God's favor, their God's favor. But the Bible is ultimately about what God has already done for us in Christ. Operative word in religion is do. The operative word in Christianity is done. There was a man named M. Montiero Williams, who was a 19th century professor of Sanskrit, uh, the ancient language of India at Oxford University. He understood the uniqueness of the Bible among all the holy books of all the world's religions. And after spending 42 years studying Eastern books, he compared them with the Bible and offered this conclusion. Pile them, if you will, on the left side of your study table, but place your own holy Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone, and with a wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between it and the so-called sacred books of the East, which severs the one from the other utterly, hopelessly, and forever. A veritable gulf which cannot be bridged over by any science of religious thought. Point of evidence number two, what I'm just going to refer to as the Bible's internal coherence. The Bible's internal coherence. And as we approach that, I'd like you to consider this question. Two questions. First of all, is the Bible an, an authorized collection of writings? Or is the Bible a collection of authoritative writings? Is the Bible an authorized collection of writings? Or is the Bible a collection of authoritative writings? So listen again and Hear the difference, an authorized collection or a collection of authoritative writings. First view, that the Bible is an authorized collection of writings, is the view, for example, of traditional Roman Catholicism. That is that the church assumes for itself the authority to rule on which books are authoritative for the church and the individual and which are not. It's a question of starting point. Does the authority of Scripture begin with the church, or does the authority of Scripture begin with Scripture? The second view is the one to which most Protestants have held, and it is, and this may surprise you, the historical view that preceded Catholicism. This view says that the Bible is a collection of books that possess in themselves inherent authority. That is, they were included in the Bible because even before formal decisions were made about which writings would be included and which would be excluded, the church, and I don't mean the church leadership or a church hierarchy, I mean the the church at large, had already come to a broad consensus as to which were authoritative and which were not. The word that's used to describe the collection of biblical books is canon. And that's not C-A-N-N-O-N, but C-A-N 
S-O-N. The Old Testament was written uh, over about a thousand year period from about 1400 B.C. to 430 B.C. When was the Old Testament canon completed? In 430 B.C. with the book of the Italian prophet Malachi. Um, The Jewish historian Josephus indicated that the Old Testament canon was closed as early as the 400s B.C. And this, of course, was, and by closed, it means that it was recognized as complete by the Jews. It was the result of a process among the Jews to recognize, over time, the authority of the 39 books of the Old Testament. And if you go to any Jewish synagogue today, go to any Jewish bookstore, and you will find that their scriptures and the Old Testament books in your Bible are identical. They're the same books. The New Testament was written over a much shorter period than the Old Testament, from about 40 to 90 A.D. It was completed when the last of the 27 books was written, which was the book of Maps. No. (laughs) It was the book of Revelation that precedes the book of Maps. And again, these, these books were recognized on the basis of a broadly held view among the churches of their inherent authority. So in the post-apostolic period, that is when all of the apostles were, were dead and they were all gone, even as early as 100 AD, there was already on a non-formalized basis recognition coalescing among the churches around a limited number of documents. And as time went on, the, the more formal councils that were being called together began discussing the concept of canonicity. Some books were accepted, some were debated, some were rejected outright as inauthentic and illegitimate. And among those rejected by the church, and I thought I ought to mention this, were, for example, a book titled The Gospel of Peter, another titled The Gospel of Thomas. There were, there were others, but those are two that have been part of a more recent discussion, cultural discussion, um, and were always somewhat prominent. And I get questions about these from time to time, especially among those who have read uh, The Da Vinci Code or saw the movie. Uh, that book and, and uh, the works of, of many other conspiracy theorists have accused the church of perpetrating a deceptive fraud by suppressing these books and others. And I want you to know that with regard to those, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. The books were known in the early church, and they were rejected. Now, because it was clear by their content that, first of all, they were written neither by Peter nor Thomas, but they were written by others using their names as pseudonyms. And secondly, and most importantly, the doctrine that they put forth was completely out of sync with the apostolic witness. They were rejected for one reason, and one reason only, was that they were recognized as false gospels. The early New Testament church community was careful in the extreme to to make sure that they gave reverence and they ascribed authority to books that were consistently apostolic and clearly inspired by apostolic, again, 
I mean, in keeping with the teachings of the apostles themselves. There was nothing loosey-goosey in their approach to uh, inclusion of books that were loosey-goosey in their doctrine. Careful scrutiny was applied. And their approach reflected, I think, what was written by Jude, who's believed to have been the brother of Jesus, when he said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And I I can tell you, that the Gospel of Thomas in particular does just that. In their approach to the inclusion or the exclusion from the New Testament canon, the early church leadership exercised great care to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints by the prophets and the apostles and to counter those who set out to pervert it. We should be thankful both to God and to them that they did. So what's been handed down to us from first the prophets and then the apostles is 66 books written over a 1,500-year span, written by more than 40 authors from every walk of life, including kings, military leaders, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, and shepherds, The majority of them did not and could not have known each other. Every one of the New Testament writers, with the exceptions of Mark and Luke, were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. The Bible was written in a variety of locales, in the wilderness, in a dungeon, on a hillside, in a palace, inside a prison, on the road, in exile. It was written in times of war and sacrifice, as well as times of peace and prosperity. It was written in different moods, at the heights of joy and in the depths of sorrow and despair, in certainty and conviction, as well as confusion and doubt. It was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was written in a wide variety of literary styles, poetry, historical narrative, song, romance, didactic didactic treatise, personal correspondence, memoirs, satire, biography, autobiography, law, prophecy, parable, and allegory. And it was written in two distinct volumes, the Old and the New Testaments. See, and despite all of the diversity among the writers, there is an absolutely stunning unity of thought that begins in Genesis and grows until you come to its culmination in the book of Revelation. We have, as it were, first the seed, and then the plant, and then the bud, and then the blossom, and then the ripened fruit. The 18th century pastor and theologian R.A. Torrey described this unity of the biblical witness with this metaphor. Listen as I read. Suppose a vast building were to be erected, the stones for which were brought from the quarries in Rutland, Vermont, Berea, Ohio, Casota, Minnesota, 
and Middletown, Connecticut. Each stone was hewn into final shape in the quarry from which it was brought. These stones were of all varieties of shape and size, cubical, rectangular, cylindrical, etc. But when they were brought together, every stone fitted into its place. And when put together, there rose before you a temple absolutely perfect in every outline, with its domes, its sidewalls, its buttresses, arches, transepts, not a gap or a flaw anywhere. How would you account for it? You would say back of these individual workers in the quarries was the mastermind of the architect who planned it all and gave it to each individual worker his specifications for the work. So in this marvelous temple of God's truth, which we call the Bible, whose stones have been quarried at periods of time and in places so remote from one another, but where every smallest part fits each other part, we are forced to say that back of the human hands that wrought was the mastermind that thought. Back of the human hands that wrought was the mastermind that thought. And when we study the Bible carefully, one of the startling discoveries is that each one of the biblical writers, whether they were fully conscious of it or not, was by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pointing at last to one person, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. In Genesis, he is the seed of the woman, the promised Redeemer. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the cloud and the fire. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet like Moses. In Joshua, he's the commander of the army of the Lord. In Judges, he's the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is the prophet of the Lord. In First and Second Kings, he is the reigning king. In First and Second Chronicles, he is the glorious temple. In Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, he is the intercessor. In Job, he is the dayspring from on high. In Psalms, he is the Lord our shepherd and the stone the builders rejected. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is the everlasting one, the wisdom of God. In the Song of Solomon, he is the lover and bridegroom. Isaiah presents him as the suffering servant. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, the prophet presents him as the righteous branch. Ezekiel presents him as the son of man. Daniel presents him as the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. In Hosea, he is the faithful bridegroom. In Joel, he is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the mighty Savior. In Jonah, he is the compassionate, forgiving God. In Micah, he is the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is the great evangelist. In Zephaniah, he is the restorer of the righteous remnant. In Haggai, he is the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he is the pierced son. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness. Matthew's gospel reveals him as Messiah. Mark's gospel reveals him as the miracle worker. 
Luke's gospel presents him as the son of man. John's gospel reveals him as the son of God, the resurrection and the life. In Acts, Luke shows him as the ascended Lord, the prince of life, the hope of Israel. Paul points to Jesus in Romans as the one who justifies. To the Corinthians, Paul presents Jesus as the last Adam. To the Galatians, he is the one who sets us free. To the Ephesians, he is the peacemaker. To the Philippians, he is the God who meets our every need. To the Colossians, he is the fullness of the Godhead, the image of the invisible God. To the Thessalonians, he is the soon-coming king. Paul presents Jesus to Timothy as the one who came into the world to save sinners, the mediator between God and man. Paul wrote to Titus about Jesus, who is our blessed hope. To Philemon, Paul presented Jesus as the friend who sticks closer than a brother. In Hebrews, we find Jesus to be the creator, the author and perfecter of our faith, the high priest who offers one sacrifice for all sin, for all people, for all time. James shows us Jesus as the Lord of glory, the judge, our forgiver, and our healer. Peter declares Jesus to be the suffering Savior, the living stone, the chief shepherd. John's letters show us Jesus as the word of life, our advocate with the Father, the lover of our souls. Jude calls him the only God, our Savior, the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and present us faultless before the throne of God. And Revelation celebrates him as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, the one who alone is worthy of our worship, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. See, the Bible is about Jesus from first to last. History is his story. And the ultimate internal coherence of the Bible is seen in this, is its focus on Messiah Jesus. Point of evidence number three, the Bible's internal witness. And by internal witness, I mean what the biblical writers themselves have to say about the scriptures themselves. Let's begin with a representative passage from the Law of Moses. Law of Moses being Genesis through Deuteronomy. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. You say, well, that's kind of a statement in the negative, isn't it? And I said, yes, it is. But it sets the stage for the rest of the Old Testament, particularly the the prophets and the prophetic psalms, for that matter. Well, what about the psalms? Psalm 119, 7 through 11 says this about Scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. 
Well, what about the prophets? Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And I might interject right here that 4,000 times in the Old Testament, the writers claim to be speaking or writing the very words of God. 4,000 times. Amongst the apostles, we find several references. One of them is 2 Peter 1, where we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Notice that. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote to Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good works. Every good work. The New Testament writers affirmed the authority of the Old Testament by quoting it over 300 times. And not only that, but in 1 Timothy, Paul implies, now listen to this, Paul, the apostle, implies that Luke's gospel is scripture, in a manner equal to what Moses wrote in the book of Deuteronomy. In 2 Peter 3.15, Peter, the Apostle Peter, equates what the Apostle Paul wrote in his letters with the rest of the scriptures, clearly implying that he regarded Paul's letters to be scripture. And Jude, in his little letter, quotes 2 Peter 3.3, implying that he regarded Peter's writings as scripture. Point of evidence number four, the witness of Jesus himself regarding the scriptures. You know, many people claim to accept the authority of Christ, but some of them, when asked if they accept the the authority of the Bible as a whole, will say that they don't. So here's the bottom line. We all must accept his authority. Jesus is validated to us as the Son of God by at least these five criteria. First, the perfect life that he lived, sinless life. Secondly, the words that he spoke, which were not like any other teacher. Third, the miracles that he performed. Fourth, his resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven. And fifth, just his profound and pervasive influence on humanity and human history. But to accept the authority of Christ and to simultaneously reject the authority of the whole Bible is an impossible dichotomy because he himself testified quite specifically to the divine inspiration and the authorship, the divine authorship of the whole Bible. 
As to the Old Testament, in Mark 7, verse 13, Jesus very, very clearly refers to the law of Moses as the word of God. And on the day that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he joined two of his disciples, just appeared to them, who were, who were walking on the road to the village of Emmaus. And in Luke 24, verse 27, it's written that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And down in verse 44, he said to them, and listen carefully to this, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. See, the Jews divided the Old Testament into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so Christ took each of those and set his, the stamp of his own authority on them. They all spoke of him, he said. In John ten thirty five, Jesus said, the scripture cannot be broken. And in saying that, he asserts the absolute accuracy and inviolability of the Old Testament. Even more specifically, in Matthew five seventeen and 18, Jesus said, do not think that I came or I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Sometimes hear people say, Jesus abolished the law. No, he didn't. He fulfilled them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, what's an iota? What's a dot? An iota is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Tiny. A dot is would be for us like a the cross of a lowercase t in size. Tiny, again, tiny. What Jesus is saying is that the scriptures are absolutely, eternally true down to the smallest letter or the smallest component of a letter. And if we accept the authority of Christ, we must then also accept the divine authority, the divine inspiration of the entire Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? It hadn't been written yet when Jesus went back into heaven. Did he, did he have anything to say about those 27 books that, uh, that became the New Testament? And the answer is, yes, he did. You say, well, how could that possibly be? Well, the Apostle John, in his gospel, records Jesus uh, during that um, those scriptures that we refer to as the upper room discourse where Jesus was with his disciples before he went to the cross. John records Jesus promising to send the Holy Spirit to his disciples. At John 14, verses 25 to 26, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things 
and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Not only would the teaching of the apostles um, be fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit would bring to their recollection all that Jesus had said to them. And, you know, you and I might be inclined to say, surely they must have forgotten much of what Jesus said and did. It would be only human to do so. And that's actually true. And the reality is they probably did. But that's not what Jesus promised. Jesus didn't promise that they would never forget anything. He promised that the Holy Spirit would teach them everything they needed to know on an ongoing basis and bring to their remembrance, remind them of all, not just some, all that Jesus had said to them. And then in John 16, 13 to 14, Jesus promised them, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears. From whom? From God the Father, God the Son. Whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. And just prior to that, Jesus had said to them, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. Cannot bear them now, rather. So Jesus' ongoing ministry of discipleship would take place in their lives through the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that through the teaching of the apostles in the pages of the New Testament, you and I become the recipients of the fullness of all that Jesus wanted to say to them and through them. How cool is that? And I'm preaching a lot better than you're saying amen. (laughs) Now, Now check this out. In Galatians 1, Paul writes regarding the origin and the inspiration of his own ministry. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel... Let me back up. This is evidence of what I'm just talking about, that, that, that the Holy Spirit continued to teach. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me, by me, is not man's gospel. I didn't make it up. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul received his ministry. He received the revelation of what he was to teach through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Point of evidence number five, the witness of fulfilled prophecy. The Old Testament, written over a period of approximately a thousand years, contains about 300 prophecies regarding the coming of Messiah including his deity, uh, his eternal pre-existence, his ancestry, uh, his virgin birth, surprising details of his early life, his earthly ministry, his miracles, his rejection by the Jews, his betrayal, his arrest, his trials, his suffering, 
his crucifixion, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, and more. It's all there in the Old Testament. Each of them, then, has been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, establishing his credentials as the promised Messiah, and again validating the reliability of the Bible. Most Bible students at some point in their in their studies are going to hear this little jingle, this little poem that says, the, the new, referring to the New Testament, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old concealed, and the uh, old is in the new revealed. Did you know that the odds that you and I are, you or I will be struck by lightning during our lifetimes is uh, about 1 in 15,300. Any of you struck by lightning? Scott has. That's because you climb power poles. <laughs> it's not a smart thing to do. What was anybody in the first service? Most of us haven't been struck by lightning. Um, you twitch a little? <laughs> So 1 in 15,300. If you're taking notes, just write that down quickly. 1 in 15,300. This week I researched the average participant's odds of winning the Powerball jackpot, which is about as dumb as climbing power poles, you know, doing that. But I wasn't surprised to find that the odds are pretty slim. Only 1 in 292,201,300. 88. Now I mentioned there are about 300 prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the person and the work of the promised Messiah or the Christ. Years ago, a mathematician named Peter Stoner uh, applied the laws of probability to determine the odds of any one person fulfilling just eight of the nearly 300 messianic prophecies. And he wrote in his book, Science Speaks, we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. And uh, there it is, one in 10 to the 17th power, one in 100 quadrillion. It gets better. That was just eight of the prophecies. Then considering just 48 of the over 300 messianic prophecies, Stoner concluded that the probability of any one man living down to the present fulfilled all 48 would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. And there's that number. 1 in 10 unquinquagantillion, I think think that's how you pronounce that, Something, something close to that. incredible, isn't it? What does it mean? It means that for the discerning, if you're paying any attention at all, God left no uncertainty about the identity of the Messiah, his one and only son, Jesus Christ. But realize that that these are just the prophecies regarding Messiah, just 48 of them. And it doesn't include the hundreds of other biblical prophecies regarding people and nations and historical events that, that either have been fulfilled or will be fulfilled in the end times. Fulfilled prophecy validates 
the reliability and the authority of the Bible and points us again to Jesus. Point of evidence number six, the Bible's external corroboration. And the external sources that corroborate the scriptures are innumerable. I, I could go on and on this morning. You don't want me to do that. You want some pie. But, but, but let me just mention one, which is biblical archaeology, which is today literally digging up more and more proofs of the veracity and the credibility of the historical claims of the Bible than at any prior time in history and at a faster pace than at any prior time in history. Things are just emerging from the ground. There's a renowned Jewish archaeologist named Nelson Gluick who wrote this in his book, Rivers in the Desert. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which, which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. John Stone Street of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview wrote, in the modern age, scholars have repeatedly discounted the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, as just a collection of folk myths and fabrications. Many doubted the historical existence of biblical figures such as Abraham, Moses, Samson, even King David. But a funny thing happened. Modern archaeology began digging up concrete evidence that the Old Testament stories were indeed rooted in history, not only rooted in history, but historically accurate. And finally, here's the famous Paul Meyer of the Creation Research Institute, who wrote, ever since scientific archaeology started a century and a half ago as as an academic discipline, the consistent pattern has been this. The hard evidence from the ground has borne out the biblical record again and again and again, the Bible has nothing to fear from the spade. Point of evidence number seven, the Bible's effectiveness and power. And I'll close with this. You know, it's not just that the scripture says things. The scripture does things. It instructs, it rebukes, convicts, it exposes, it restores, it encourages, it comforts, it brings wisdom, It hurts, it heals, it lights our way. No wonder the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active. Uh, It's not a dead document. And so for the very reason that the Bible is the very life-giving breath of God, we need to affirm together that scripture, as Paul said, is God-breathed. It's the breath of God. I remember it was the breath of God that breathed life into the first man. It's God breathed. It's life itself. And there's so much more I can say this morning, but let me ask you this. Where do you stand in relationship to the Bible as the word of God? The Bible claims to be God's word. And then by the spirit proceeds to prove that fact over And over again. And yet, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, the non-spiritual person, the non-Christian person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. If we believe in Jesus for who he is, 
the incarnate, crucified, resurrected, ascended, glorified Son of God, the soon incoming King, then we will believe in the Bible. And it's also true that if we believe in the Bible, then we must also believe in Jesus. See, there's no alternative. Because from Genesis to Revelation, it all points to him. So because that's true, the answer to the question of your belief in the Bible as the word of God will in fact determine your eternal destiny. It's not that the Bible will save you. Jesus made that clear to the Pharisees. You think that in them you find salvation. You don't. Scriptures can't save you. But what you do with the Bible determines whether your destiny is heaven or hell because what you do with Jesus is the determining factor. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you think that the scriptures will save you. But what you refuse to believe and acknowledge is that the scriptures speak of me. What you do with Jesus also reflects your belief in God himself. Jesus invited us to experience the ultimate point of evidence, the ultimate proof of whether or not the Bible is God's word when he said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will, listen now, listen now. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that Jesus is who he said he is. Taste and see that you can trust the Bible. I invite you this morning to embrace the Bible as the true word of the one true God and to surrender yourself, heart, soul, mind, and body to his son, Jesus Christ.